This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, all you beautiful people. Hopefully your holidays have gone well. I want to let you know that today's show is sponsored by Level Up, a monthly mystery apparel subscription from Loot Crate. Now you can showcase your geek, chic style with this company. You can get two different pairs of high-quality socks, one to two fashionable accessories, or a wearable item like a long-sleeve shirt or lounge pants, the same themes as Loot Crate every month, and it serves as a great companion to your Loot Crate because there are no repeats. Each month's theme is inspired by all your favorite pop culture brands like Star Wars, Doctor Who, Fallout 4, and often contains high-quality exclusives, stuff that you will never find ever again. Go to LootCrate.com backslash 100 words to learn more. And then use the code 100 words to save 10%. They send out amazing stuff. So trust me on this one. If you have a person who likes pop culture, just sign them up for this. Or if you yourself, treat yourself, you know? You got some holiday cash lying around, do it up. 100 words is the code and that gets you 10% off. So visit lootcrate.com backslash 100 words. Thank you. Now here's the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to a holiday break edition of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins. I'm in transit as we speak, coming back from Las Vegas, Nevada, after spending a beautiful holiday with the family and uh, my grandfather, who's 95 years old, still still doing the damn thing. But um, it's kind of weird. I know I've talked about this in a previous episode, but the uh, the the idea of a person becoming tired with life, you know, and I'm not trying to start this whole episode off on on a down note, but at the same time, this is my reality, so of course I'm going to talk about it, but um, his, uh, you know, his wife slash my grandmother, she passed away maybe about four or five years ago, and um, he was her primary caregiver for a long, long time because she was suffering from Alzheimer's. And, um, yeah, basically it's like, you know, he's, he's just done. He's tired. He's like, you know, I've accomplished all I wanted to accomplish. And, um, I, I really am glad I have lived as long as I, I have, but, um, you know, I'm kind of done. It's, it's hard to get around. I have an oxygen tank all the time. And, um, yeah, it's just a very interesting concept because, you know, I mean, I know all of us kind of run into the, oh man, I'm so exhausted. I'm so busy. I'm doing this. But then what happens when you get on the other side? You know, not like the other side is in like death, the other side, but just the other side of like, oh, yeah, like being comfortable with the idea of not being here. You know, it's such a interesting concept that I think, um, yeah, I mean, I've never I personally am not afraid of dying, but I know a lot of people are. And I don't know, there's just a lot of a lot of emotions swirling right now. So that's why you get it. Ha <laughs> ha. You get to be my repository for information. So but anyways, that's not why you're here. You are here to listen to an interesting discussion that I had with a person who is influential within the context of independent music, punk, hardcore, indie rock, whatever you'd like to call it. And uh, that's what we do here. So the person this week is Gavin Van Vlack. He is the guitarist for legendary hardcore band Burn. And he also played in a band called Absolution, which is uh, definitely legendary in their own rights, while not as widely recognized um yeah but gavin it was great the, i this i will lay out exactly what happens when people get on this show or how people get on this show so this is what happens so a couple maybe i don't know two three months back i had adam blake from h2o on the show 
he loved the experience, said he had enjoyed it, had a lot of fun. You know, obviously was talking to Gavin. Gavin immediately was like, hey, I'd love to be on the show. Then Adam gives Gavin my phone number. Gavin texts me and was like, hey, man, I would love to appear on the show. And it's like, you know, 16, 17-year-old me is like, why is the guitarist from Burn text messaging me? Like, this is weird, but it's awesome at the same time. That is exactly why I love doing this show, because people have a good time on it. They enjoy talking about their lives and kind of the principles that they have learned that they carry on throughout all of their years existing on this planet. And, um, yeah, so I was really excited to talk to Gavin. And, um, man, he's a very engaging conversation. I'd never met him before, so it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always scared when I'm walking into these conversations with people who I've never met before because, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know if they'll get my sense of humor. I don't know if they'll understand what I'm trying to accomplish with the show and all that sort of stuff kind of lingers in my head. But within 10 minutes of talking with Gavin, I was like, oh, this dude's totally down, totally gets it ready to engage, present, present in the conversation. So, um, yeah, there, we'll, we'll, we'll get to Gavin in a minute, but I wanted to recognize something that I found very beautiful about the Internet. Like, obviously, there's a lot of horrible things that happen on the, on the social media properties, on Twitter and Instagram and everything else. There's a lot of horribleness that happens, but I, there was a really nice interaction that I had with uh, a person named Jacob, and forgive me if I'm butchering your name, but I, I'm just operating off the top of my head right now because, like I said, I'm driving back from Las Vegas right now. So uh, Jacob lives in Omaha, Nebraska, and he is a very active participant in bands, and I, for whatever reason, always seem to kind of uh, make off-handed remarks in regards to playing shows in front of 10 people in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I use Omaha, Nebraska as a, as a placeholder for, you know, you can mention any town um, in America or in the world and say, like, oh, yeah, the, you know, 10 people in, you know, Boise, Idaho or whatever. So, basically, he was like, you know, hey, did you have, like, bad shows there? It seems like you always mention Omaha and, like, you know, he, he's been listening to the show for a while. And he's like, hey, I live in Omaha. We, while, yeah, we don't have a solid all-ages independent music scene we really try to, you know, do our best here. And it was one of those things where the way that he engaged me, not only on Twitter, but then he also sent a very nice email linking me to a bunch of bands from that general area. It was awesome. I was like, this is exactly the sort of conversation that we need to be having on the internet. Um, because, you know, I don't need to inappropriately malign Omaha, Nebraska. Like I said, it was simply just a placeholder because all the shows that I personally have played in Omaha have been great. Played at a place called The Ranch Bowl with Darkest Hour. Amazing show. Also played a, I don't, can't even remember the name of the venue, but it was a, uh, it was a show with like Bleeding Through and uh, Every Time I Die, I want to say. And then I also became really, really good friends with a local band called I Am Legend. So anyways, this isn't an apology, but it's definitely meant to showcase, uh, you know, the power of words. And I don't want to bum anybody out by using or inappropriately painting a picture with a very broad brush that like, oh, dude, Omaha, Nebraska is terrible. Because it's not. Like I said, it was a placeholder. So thank you, Internet, and thank you for listening, Jacob. I appreciate it and having that interaction. So anyways, without further ado, I hope your holidays have been well. And now we're gearing back up to the first week of January where everyone kind of pokes their heads out and is like, I'm ready to conquer the world. New Year's resolutions, blah, blah, blah. More on that next week because I find that whole practice to be quite just ridiculous. But anyways, 
my conversation with Gavin is not ridiculous. How's that for a segue, huh? But yeah, Gavin was so engaged. He does so many cool things with his life, not only in playing in bands, but the personal training endeavor that he has gone on as well. It's great stuff. So without further ado, which is basically what I always say when I'm introducing the actual conversation, but without further ado, here's Gavin, and I will talk to you after the episode is over. The first Burn EP was, was really um, influential to me personally because it really was the first thing where I was able to pay attention to like, hey, someone can express themselves in a whatever heavy hardcore band that had emotional lyrics and political messages and things that weren't um, so typical of that particular time. Um, so, you know, when people corner you and kind of are like, yo, Burr, the first EP, oh my gosh, like, what do, what do people typically express to you in regards to that? Is it those things that I mentioned or are there other, obviously, uh, things that people pull from it? Um, it's a lot of, we, I get a lot of that. I get a lot of kids coming up to me about the guitar stuff, which I always find interesting because I've had people come up to me and be like, you know, you're the reason I started playing guitar, which my immediate reaction to that is to give them five other reasons. You know, and I'll like turn them on to things like Jeff Beck, Wes Montgomery, um, you know, just guitarists that I listen to that I think are influential. Um, and I mean, the, the thing, like you said, it's like it wasn't typical. I think that Chaka, myself, Alan Cage, and Alex at that point were anything but typical. Um, we were all very iconoclastic about things. I've always been. And, and what that means is like when everything starts going one way, you're usually that, that little fish that's swimming against the stream. Um, and we've always kind of been that way. I still am to this day in, uh, you know, what I do for a living now. I just don't, I'm not one to follow lemmings off a cliff. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, and, uh, it was weird because when the record first came out, I've said this before in interviews, uh, it was treated a little bit weird because people were like, Oh, it's, it's really metal. And I'm like, well, what the hell's wrong with that? I mean, but uh, after that, like, it just seemed like all these bands, all, a lot of bands really started going intentionally metal. We didn't have any intent of going metal. I love distortion on guitars. Um, I love loud, raucous, just, you know, grungy guitars sound awesome to me. Um, I think they're sexy as fucking hell, uh, you know, and you you back that up with, you know, just you know you put alan cage behind it who's just at that point was such a groundbreaking drummer and uh someone who lives music i mean mean, that whole lineup was we were trying to we were trying to write something different because there was so much stuff that was the same and it seemed like people were just starting bands so they could be part of a scene and not really you know there's a difference between being part of a scene and actually being something influential and you know being important to a scene mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah no and, I, uh, I see what you yeah i see exactly how you're laying it out because i do think that they're it's so emblematic of that particular release because it does like you said even you know whatever 20 some odd years later you do feel that sense of it's you, you guys were t- very deliberately pushing against something yeah i mean it's like uh i mean especially at that time because there was this whole uh like fervor about oh the Lower East Side in which we had kind of like taken up and we're living in what was at that point Wild Wild Williamsburg um, 
which it's funny because there was a lot of there was so much of that that New York thing going on that was in Williamsburg at that point. Like I know that Alex Alex from uh, Side by Side and uh, you know Gorilla Biscuits and Purcell were living in Williamsburg at that point. The guys from Boiling Point were living there, um, and it was really kind of crazy. I mean, I think that's what we lived really far in the south side of Williamsburg, which. I think really nurtured what we did musically. It was chaotic. It was crazy. There was all sorts of like weird, like there was art, but it was very weird art. It was very street for lack of a better term. There was, I mean, and that was anything from graffiti to someone welding a a sculpture on the side of a fucking building. Um, And that I think definitely had a mental imprint on how we saw music. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it it took a lot of boundaries out of the way. And, uh, you know, at that point, like I said, there was a lot of people that were, they were starting bands not because they wanted to do music. They were starting bands because it was like, oh, well, you know, I need to have my hooded sweatshirt and I need to have my fucking Nikes and I need to have my band. And it became more accoutrement than it was something that you wanted to do artistically. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, yeah, no, that makes total sense. Because, yeah, you, you, I mean, you obviously see it time and time again where it's like they're, you know, a band or two pops from a certain area. And when I say pops, like they just start to get notoriety. And then you see the second and third, fourth wave and, you know, how many of the waves after that. And then until the the formula gets kind of tweaked by one or two other bands. I mean, I really wish that we could take a fortune 500 structure to this kind of stuff and cut the bottom 10% in music because what it is, and what I'm saying is that, like, you, listen, you're not good at music, but it doesn't mean that you're not good. It's like you're not, you're like, and don't do music because oh, you're expected to. Music is something you should do because you love to do music. Art is something you should do because you love to do art. My roommate, he does quantification. He loves numbers. Everybody has something that they love. Don't let, I mean, don't ever let me make you feel like, oh, well, if you want to hang with us and you have to do this, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go out and experiment with music and experiment with art. That's all well and good, but don't be, you know, I just, there was so much stuff there that was like, just, it, it, it took up space and it took, it, it made too much noise. And it was like, it was just un necessary i might be sound i don't not meaning to sound like some kind of fucking elitist but i just believe that everybody has their path in things and a lot of people were at that point pretending to do music which i think really sucks yeah no i i can i can easily understand and empathize and it doesn't to me it doesn't come across as obviously like you were saying you know being uh uh bristly or old and cranky or whatever you want to call it it's like it's just you were speaking from that was the time in which you were creating so i totally get that yeah. Um, yeah, it's not a, it's not a matter of being old and cranky okay here's what it is at this venture in my life i realize that all of us every single one of us that is listening to this right now we have a finite amount of time to do things. And the thing is like, the the one thing that I've learned is that you cannot get time back and you should experiment with other things. And if you really find a love in something, work at it to get good at it, you know, develop the skills it takes to get good at it and inspire other people through that, which I don't think there's enough of. I don't think there's enough. We need more and more. We can't have enough people inspiring other people right now to do great things. Um, but 
if you're doing something and just kind of dragging along to do it, and I saw this a lot in the graffiti scene, like there were guys who, they weren't really into graffiti. They weren't really into writing. They wanted to hang out with graffiti writers. So they kind of like, oh, I've got a tag and I've got like, you know, my, my messenger bag with a couple cans in it. And they weren't really doing it. They weren't the guys that were going to go out and go all city. Um, I'm kind of one of those people that like that believes in like doing something and really developing skill. I think that again comes from my job that I do, where I, I work in skill development, and uh, it's uh, I just I have I, you know I want people to find things that are great for them. And again, I'm not saying don't go out and experiment and try new things, but there was a lot of there were a lot of bands, quite honestly, that were getting great accolades that weren't all that good. And maybe you know, there's no, no accounting for taste, but it was just because, Oh, well they're friends with so-and-so though. So I have to like them. Right. It's um, like, it's, it's like a matter of uh, function rather than form. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think with, with, with burn, we weren't really a scene band. We didn't come out trying to be part of anything. We kind of floated from the CBS crowd to the ABC No Rio crowd. We played some. We would play metal shows. We would play with hip hop. We played ARS One. You know, we played hip hop shows. Like we just wanted to get on stage and and voice our music. That was it. Right. Right. Um, just, so we to, never really like tried to. Like we never had the intent of like, oh, I'm going to write a song that sounds like straight ahead so that when Tommy Carroll walks in the room, he's going to be like right on. You know, it's like that to me just seems so just uh, horish. No, for sure. And we'll, we'll hit on more of that a little bit later. But you yourself, were you, uh, you, you strike me as a very tried and true sort of East Coast New York dude. Were you born and raised uh, in, in New York or where did you come up? No, no, I'm not. That's contrary to popular opinion. I was born in New Hampshire, raised in New Hampshire and Vermont. And we moved down to the city when I was young, when I was like 13 years old. Um, Got it. And I had a lot. I mean, my mom, my mom had cancer. So we moved to the city because the hospital that was near where we were living was not doing a good job of helping my mom out. So we came down so she could go to Sloan Kettering. And we kind of bounced around from living situation to living situation for a bit. My mom passed away when I was, you know, not too long after that. So I was kind of like, um, I got emancipated, what's called emancipated minor papers. At that point, it's kind of responsible for myself, which is, I would not advise it for everyone. It was not, it was very trial and trial and error. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I lived with friends at friends' houses, uh, I was in I, – I tried to do the foster system for a little while, which didn't work for me. Um, and it was bizarre because all the nightmare stories that I've heard from the foster system, I had probably the easiest one. Um, the guy who had taken myself and eight other guys in, total stand-up guy, never did a fucking – never raised a hand to us. He was a state cop, and I just didn't feel comfortable. That I didn't feel like you – know, all the other guys were kind of like – they were jockish in a way that I wasn't – really comfortable with they were kind of you know they wanted they wanted to fit in i really didn't give a fuck about fitting in and uh i wanted to you know i wanted to play music and i wanted to do different things i wanted to live a little more heroically and uh at a certain point i just said to lionel i was like this isn't working for me and i had the ability because of being an emancipated minor to basically go out on my own so i went and started living like 
you know, sleeping on park benches with friends and like, you know, it was kind of, it was, it's not, it's, it sounds really horrific, but you know, in summertime you sleep on park benches and, you know, set up abandoned buildings, to like be able to live in and, you know, and you, you would really make do in the winter, like you crash at friends' houses and there was different ways you could get around, like, you know, freezing your ass off in New York city at that point too. So it was, um, it was really interesting. I learned a lot. It's weird. I, I had learned a lot of survival skills growing up in New Hampshire that I really got to employ at that point in my life, too. I was going to say, because obviously the, the notion of, of New Hampshire and Vermont, you, you feel very, you know, outdoor living and that sort of stuff. So it's like you... Oh, total outdoor living. I grew up in a swamp. <laughs> I grew up literally in a swamp. Um, I grew up hunting and fishing and trapping as a kid. Um, I had a really good toolbox of survival skills i had been trapped out in uh out in like three foot snow drifts like a couple of times as a kid i knew how to survive through that stuff um i mean that but that the funny thing is as a kid that was stuff that you learned when you were young because that, that was stuff that happened up there you know when you grow you know you're 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 living basically at the base of the white mountains in new hampshire um shit gets cold shit gets really cold and uh you're out running trap line and you get hit with with a major snow drop. You might not make it out of the woods that night, which means you have to know how to make a lean to make a fire, you know, and set up to be able to maybe camp out for a couple of days. Right. Right. Um, this was as honestly as a, as a 10, 11 year old kid, this was stuff that wasn't, it was commonplace. Most of us knew it. Yeah. No, it's amazing. You uh, and, and so, what was your family structure like? Obviously, I mean, it sounds like your your uh, biological father was not a part of your scenario. Did you have brothers and sisters? Uh, my family kind of put the word "fun" back and dysfunctional. Right. Um, <laughs> my oldest sister was the man of the house. She worked three jobs to put herself through college and support the family. She put herself through Wellesley, actually. Um, and I don't like saying this because, like, we have different fathers, but I've never called her my half sister because she never showed me half love okay you know she's always um she's always been i was one of the one time i'd been married she was my best man um my other sister is everything awesome as well um you know she's a country kid still she lives in new york but she still has that that, there's that survival skill set there that kind of like radiates over Uh um i'm very close to my sisters but i'm I, i like on a family thing, like, oh, I get reached out to a lot, too, by, by uh, other family members, and they're really good people, but my friends are really my family. I mean, are you familiar with Dan Savage? Yep. He's a columnist. One of the best quotes he ever, he ever said was, like, there's your biological family and your logical family. <laughs> no, you know? that's true. I mean, and, especially with the circumstances that you're obviously describing, because you know, yeah. usually everyone is just like, "Well, you know, you just you, you got to deal with your family, and you have to get used to it." But it's like, obviously, when you are you know, fourteen, fifteen years old and becoming an emancipated minor, like, you, you literally had a choice at that point. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's. I mean, the, the, getting back to the hardcore scene, I think that's what what draws us in is like the possibility of a logical family. You know, totally. of people that we respect and people that we look up to in a way. And it's okay to look up to people. You know, there's this whole thing of like, oh, no idols and no, there's no, you know, I'm not a big fan of like, you know, icons and idols and so on and so forth, but I'm a huge fan of mentors. 
I'm a huge fan of keeping people around me that I can learn from on a daily basis. And that's kind of what the hardcore scene gives us. I mean, through its music, through its art, through its interaction, it shows. Um, and that's what we developed. So it's like, you know, I, I think it's a good place to find mentors with good, you know, with decent, you know, tools that can be handed down. Um, and we have some, like I said, we always, we have some really great, you know, what I would call role models out there. Right. No, it makes sense. Um, and so then as you, uh, you know, obviously as you started to, uh, develop the survival skills in New York even further, and like you said, crashing at friends places, doing all this, um, I presume at that point, that's kind of when, uh, the scene, so to speak, started to reveal itself to you where it was like, Oh, like this is what this style of music is. And these are what shows are. And like, I presume that was around that time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would go to anything loud. I would go to metal shows. I would go to uh, hardcore sh- shows, like anything that had like distorted guitars. And that's like what I was into. Um, and I started gravitating more and more for the hardcore scene because it seemed a little more, even as weird and goofy as it was, which I thought was awesome, it seemed a little more intellectual. It seemed a little smarter and it seemed to stand for something. Wherefore, at that point, metal was just like, you know, you know, let's rock the fuck out and we're going to sing about demons and we're going to, you know, like that kind of thing, which is it's all well and good and campy in its own way. But the hardcore scene had a message. I mean, if you look back to even in the seventies and not that I was there, but the bad brains were saying something, you know, the, the dead boys were saying something, um, you know, the, even like going back even further to the punk scene, television, talking heads, all that stuff was saying something. And, uh, it was relevant and it made sense. Um, and, uh, it was, you know, it just, it just seemed to be more towards where I wanted to go. And plus also, I think it, it wasn't so much of a follow along thing as the metal thing was. The metal thing was like, you know, you had to have your uniform, you had to have this. And I was never much into fucking uniforms. Right. Right. Um, and so like, did you, uh, did you finish like high school? Was this something that you were trying to, to struggle with as well? Or, or did you basically drop out at that point? I, I barely, I barely finished high school. Okay. Um, I got, you know, I didn't pay attention. I didn't get good grades, you know, and I, for, it was weird for a long time. I was like, Oh, well, you know that, you know, I, I'm just not that kind of smart. And it's funny because the more I've read and the more I've read about it, it's, it's good that I wasn't that kind of smart because the kind of smart that I am actually functions well in the world. Wherefore, being, you know, like, you know, memorizing a bunch of fake-ass fucking history, which really was not, you know, factual and has been distorted. And, you know, history is always dictated by the, by, by the victors. Um, you know, that stuff is... It just it's it's nonsense now, but I felt kind of weird. Like, wow, I wish I had done good in high school. I'm really I'm not worried about that. You know, it's like you don't do good in high school. It's not you know if that's a mark on my permanent record, so fucking be it. Right. Yeah, you know, you're like I've been able to survive this long without it. So, <laughs> oh, they fu- they fucking terrorize kids with that. Like, oh, you better do good on this, or your whole life is going to be a fucking no. You. You can start over at any fucking point. Don't let some guidance counselor or teacher tell you, like, well, you better do good on this test or you're not going to get into this school and it's going to fuck your whole life up. Now, I mean, it's horrible how they fucking terrorize kids in school. They terrorize kids in high school and grade school, and then they fucking put them into indentured servitude in college. Yeah. No, you know, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. 
Yeah, there's there's definitely. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's called there's there's uh, there's money to be made at putting people through the system, and it's uh, yeah. Anytime you subvert, yeah. anytime you subvert that, it's always like, wait a minute, no, that those people can't get in through the world like that. Yeah, but um, so the uh, the thing that I always find interesting too, I guess, kind of just in general about obviously New York City hardcore, um, you know, it's mythologized to a point where I'm sure some stories by some people are blown completely out of proportion. Um, but when I was doing some research in, in regards to speaking with you, it's like in the past, you said something that really struck me where most people in the scene didn't have any family to rely on similar to what we were just talking about a little bit ago. Um, do you, uh, do you think it's one of those things that because so many people did kind of retreat to, uh, the, the music scene and the friends that made up their, like you said, their logical family. Uh, do you feel like that's why it was so crazy? Sort of like, you know, I'm sure you've heard the saying where it's like the inmates are running the asylum. Um, do oh, you... absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, here's the thing you have to think about too. And anybody who understands neurological disorders and like neurological function will understand this is that until we're about 25 to 26 years old, our prefrontal cortex has not, doesn't, really make contact with our amygdala, okay? And in that saying, we're really not able to make good conscious decisions, meaning like sitting around and waiting for your second decision to show up. We usually act just straight from the gut, kind of like eat it, fuck it, kill it kind of thing. Um, so you've got a whole crowd of, you know, of let's say anywhere from 10 to 120 people acting on these gut-based issues and, uh, yeah, it can get kind of Lord of the Flies, just to say the least. And there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of witch hunts. I fell part, I fell, I don't want to say victim to it, but like my name came under scrutiny at per- certain points during the New York hardcore scene, which I can give fuck all care about. Um, there was other people that, you know, I've had to stand up for because, you know, people, go, oh, well, it's this person's fault. You know, it's, it, it it's really interesting. Um, but at that point it was very much, yeah, there was, this was our family. And it's funny because there's still people out there that I do consider, I consider to be my family. Like I, I got, got to hang out with Jimmy from Murphy's law. Who's been, I've known him almost all my whole fucking life. And you just realize how much you've been through with this person, you know, to, uh, you know, to the point of like, let's, you know, John, I'll put her, bring up two points of very much controversy, John Joseph and Harley. Both of them were very influential on me. Um, and, you know, I have people all the time, I'll have people come to me and be like, oh, well, Harley this and Harley that. And I'm like, listen, man, it's, you know, it's not something that I want to really broach on because, you know, Harley at a certain point was, you know, he saved some lives with that, with that you know, with his music. Yeah. You know, there are some peop- people out there that heard that. And it's the same thing. And I'll say the same thing about, like, Youth of Today. I'll say the same thing about Gorilla Biscuits. You know, like people heard these 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 records and these songs and were like, holy shit, there's someone out there that thinks like me. I'm not insane. It's oh. such a liberating thing when you realize that you are not alone in your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's you know? a there's a beacon out there and it's like, oh Wow. Absolutely. Totally. And it's, and it, it's also amazing too, because I, I, this thought is just occurring to me right now where it's like, obviously it's, it's retroactive where it's like, you can look back and realize that people prior to your living have gone through similar instances, or like you said, had similar thoughts and you know, they've, they've come through in some capacity. And so it's uh-huh. like, there's, there's that level of encouragement too, where it's just like, Oh, 
like this sort of against the grain thing, it doesn't mean you're constantly swimming upstream. It just means you're trying to invent your own sort of paradigm. Yeah. Well, you're trying to make a different route. You're trying to make a different stream. Yeah. You know? No, for sure. Um, and absolutely. And that's what, what happened is like, you know, and this, you know, it boils down to like, you know, you think about the earliest bands, the bands like the bad brains, um, the bad bands like the stimulators and, you know, so far ahead of their time. And I mean, I mean, bands that were even like really before the term hardcore was invented. Hardcore really is like an eighties term, you know, Definitely. um, you know, I mean, and if you think about it, you go back to like, you know, I mean, Iggy and the Stooges, that, that shit's pretty fucking hardcore. MC5, that shit is like, you know, it's, it's, the same, it's the same vibe and the same feeling. It's just a different label on it. But getting back to what's pertinent to us here is it's, you know, trying to, trying to, ch- you know, trying to change our world, you know, locally first. And then hopefully on a global scale, you know, hopefully, let's say arbitrarily, you know, we were rehearsing last night. We were working on, we were working on some new material. You know, I'm really hoping that some kid's going to hear that fucking song and one of those songs and be like, hold it. This kind of answers something for me. Yeah. That's what's really important to me. You know, it's like the, um, you know, the structure of the song and the energy that the song brings up across there's so much that goes into it where you know, some kid heard Shelby Judge, some kid heard Godhead, or some kid heard New Morality and was like, wow, this resonates. This fucking resonates with me, you know? Yeah. And it's just, you know. Well, it's, no, it's, I mean, it's, um, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it definitely is important to realize, like, especially with the sort of, you know, entertainment nature that is involved in obviously playing in a band because, yeah, you, you know, there's a performance aspect to it and you obviously have to do these, these, yeah. these things that, uh, you know, most people would define as sort of ego gratification. But then it's like once you peel away some of those layers of artifice, you do realize, like you said, th- that feeling where it's like you, you want to be that sort of you know light in at the end of someone's tunnel or whatever and like whatever art you're putting out in the world that's what you want to hopefully guide through yeah yeah no it's yeah. super exciting. but the thing is with the performance of it it's equally as important in its own way because it's like when they, like i brought this up before when that room pops you know when you get say like a thousand people in the room and let's say a thousand and five with your band members on stage okay and for that moment there there's that energy where everybody feels the exact same thing. And that's when we have changed the flow of that stream. That's when we have, we have, we have hit that state of flow. And it's like, a, it's like a communal state of flow to where everything is right within that moment. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, that's why even the performance is important with these songs, because I've heard great songs with great messages and crappy performances and you know, make me believe it. If you're going to sing it to me, make me believe it. You know, no, for sure. That's, you know, I've seen bands that were absolutely derivative. You can say exactly what record they ripped off, what song from, but I'll tell you, they went out on stage and they fucking meant it. And that changes shit right there. Totally. It totally shows it. You know, um, 
so then as you started to uh, develop more of, of kind of, you know, who you were and your identity uh, in regards to obviously like, you know, playing in Absolution and, uh, you know, playing in your first bands, um, what yeah. the, you know, what kind of person did you find yourself being? I know you mentioned earlier, obviously, like you said, a sort of iconoclast. Um, were you uh, that sort of person who was, I guess, kind of reflective and contemplative, but at the same time is also very, you know, quick to anger and like had a temper? Like, where did you find yourself? I wasn't really, I mean, I, I don't know. It wasn't really quick to anger and temper. I think I was, uh, I was an odd recluse and, uh, kind of very knee jerk in judgment about some things. And, uh, I found myself more and more kind of isolating. Um, especially like, you know, like I said, like I'd been involved in the squat scene to where I had opened a building in like 89 that was like, in, on 6th Street between Avenue C and D. And at that point, that neighborhood was absolute bedlam. But I loved it because I lived on the, on the top floor of this building and it was like a refuge. No one was there. No one could find me. No one knew where I was. Um, and at that point, I had really started to isolate. It was towards the end of Absolution, the beginning of Burn. And I had started to isolate more and more and isolate more and more. And I started, and it was weird because there was a lot of people that were put in front of me that I look back now that I didn't give a chance. Like, and it wasn't like I like, like insulted them, but I was just like, Noah, I'm not interested. I wasn't accepting any, any new people into my community. And I was systematically at that point starting to isolate myself. And, uh, you can hear it a lot in the music. Um, and, uh, it was strange. I think I, there were, that I didn't know how, I didn't know how to hand, I didn't have the tools to handle uh, like the feelings that I had, you know, and it was like, it was really just, you know, I, a lot of anger and a lot of frustration that the only tool I, I could really manage was to take myself out of pictures, you know, to not put myself around people. So I wouldn't have to express it huh. because yeah. it was really, it was really venomous and it was really toxic. And it was kind of that like, where you're spitting venom at someone else, but you're inherently it's going out your mouth and you're it. And there's like a, there's like a blowback on it. Sure. You know, sure. there's the old saying like having, having resentment, having resentment is like drinking poison and expecting your enemies to die from it. You know? Yeah. No, it's and true. I just, yeah, I just didn't have the tools. So I found the only way I could was just to take myself more and more out of the scene and out of the picture. Sure. Um, and then uh, something I also think is is kind of symptomatic of, of that entire uh, time frame and scene um, was the uh, you know I mean people got involved in some really dark shit from you know crime to you know drug use which you've you mentioned in, in the past uh, for yourself and in other interviews. I am um, a huge fan of drugs and alcohol. Right, <laughs> but but I, I am I am honestly, dude. They worked for me for a long time because those were some of the tools that I had. Uh-huh. Um, and if it wasn't, dude, if it I, I don't know because I'm not that smart, honestly, but I have the feeling that if I didn't have drugs and alcohol, I would have probably eaten a bullet or something like that. Yeah. You felt, you, you, know? you, you felt like that was, uh, for lack of yeah, a better term, I'm, a coping mechanism. Well, yeah. And that's the thing is I, I'm not being like, oh, I wanted to kill myself. I don't know if I wanted to kill myself, but I've seen people without coping tools and how they react. And I don't consider, like I said, I don't consider myself to be that smart to be able to figure it out. And it took me a long time to be able to function without those tools. 
right. and to re, you know, and to, to get other tools. And this is possibly, you know, part of my upbringing. I don't know. I, it's metaphysical. I don't know if it's genetic. Again, I will always use a disclaimer. I am not that smart. Um, so it's, but yeah, I mean, people, I had someone say to me like, well, you're totally anti-drugs and alcohol. On the other hand, I'm a huge fan. I just don't use them anymore. Right. You, 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 know? you felt like that was a very, uh, a sort of a time and a place for you where that was able to usher you through difficult times. Mm-hmm. It, well, it kind of shut, shut up the voices in my head, mm-hmm. you know, sure. which everyone has. Them. I'm not afraid to like, oh, I still get voices in my head. realize that like, you know, was, you know, what I call Van Vlakistan, which is the real estate that resides between the two ears on the side of my head. Um, like usually my first my, my knee-jerk reaction, which is what I used to go off of, is a fucking lie. And it's usually, you know, myself trying to shoot myself in the foot. Wherefore, if I take a breath, sit around for a second, like a normal person does, because you know what? a normal person probably has that first knee-jerk reaction. He just knows, ah, that's a bullshit idea. Oh, I should punch this guy in the face. No, you shouldn't punch this guy in the face. You know, is it making sense? Yeah, no, no, I see, I see yeah. what you're saying, yeah. The, you know, I, like, like I said, I used to go off my first gut instinct all the time, and it took me a long time to realize, that, okay, sit back and see what happens here. Right, there was no filter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, through, I mean, obviously, you, you kind of answered this question, but obviously, the, uh, you know, a lot of people that, that got involved in some, in some dark times and material... I see them learning to a certain extent, but then it seems like people such as yourself with what you're expressing, you were able to um, obviously come through the other end and not be completely swallowed up, like you said, you know, by either killing yourself uh, through your own hands or obviously overdosing on drugs. Um, the, you know, did what, what sort of, uh, I guess, lessons did you learn from like, obviously the, the you know, because from what I understand too, like you, you encountered some legal issues as well that obviously forced you to, uh, you know, reevaluate your life on, on many different terms. What sort of, you know, lessons did you learn from that? Um, well, let's see. Rule number one is the universe will always conspire in your favor if you let it. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things like as long as I take myself out of the equation and try to do the next right thing, um, things always tend to work out to my advantage. And I'm not trying to say, oh, it's karma, this, that, and the other thing. I have no idea what's best for me. If I had gotten everything that I had wanted in life, I wouldn't have anything that I have now. I'd have a lot less. Um, everything that I have around me is like I'm kind of like baffled because I'm like, wow, I have a really awesome life and I'm surrounded by really, really creative, awesome people. Um, and that's not where I saw myself. Uh, you know, I uh, – it was – you know, like, like I said, like the universe will always conspire in your favor if you let it. Um, my first, one of my first, you know, moral compass tools is to be of service, which I believe that everyone on this planet, like we are meant to be of service to each other in one way or another. Um, and I get, again, I'm not getting into any kind of metaphysical religious concept here. I don't, I'm not smart enough to tell you whether there's a God or not. I don't, like I said, I'm not that smart. I do not know. Um, I just know that when I help other people, it kind of like takes me outside of my own fucking head. And I stop thinking about like, oh, well, what's in it for Gavin? Or why doesn't Gavin have this? Or, you know, how is Gavin going to get from point A to point B? You know, 
Wherefore, if I help someone out trying to do something that they're trying to gain for themselves, it just it, it leaves two people happy. Yeah. No, it's a good. That's you a know. Good, yeah, totally. It's a good point. Um, do do you become? I mean, obviously. I mean, I know you mentioned you know religion. Like that was obviously such a huge component of. Um, you know, what was happening in the early to mid nineties, obviously with, you know, Krishna consciousness and all these other things kind of swirling around. Did you, uh, did you kind of attach yourself to any sort of uh, faith whatsoever? Or was it just constantly, like you said, sort of, uh, uh, well, I'm not that smart. I'm just going to kind of, you know, <laughs> filter through this well, as, as it, as I see fit. I, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm like mesmerized by like religion. I think in all in general, it's just fantastic is the best word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Utah Phillips said, you know, we have, all these doctrines, rules, laws, we've got all these Bibles, we've got the Quran, we've got, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, the Torah, and we like, when it comes down to it, we're writing out all these rules that good people don't need and bad people aren't going to pay attention to. Right. You <laughs> know? Sure. Um, so, do I believe that if someone has not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they are doomed to hell? Once again, I don't know if hell exists. Okay? I only know the hell that I've been through. You know, mm-hmm. which I will say that maybe, okay, I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And I find the difference is like religion is for people that always, it's kind of, it seems like they're afraid of hell. I'm spiritual because I've kind of been through my own hell, Got you it. know, and it's my own hell. I'm not saying, that, oh, I've been through hell and it's far worse than what anybody else. No, I've, everybody's, you know, for some people scratching the hood of their car is their hell. You know, that's enough for them to fucking be like, okay, I've got to start doing things. I've got to get my shit together. Um, for me, it took, you know, I had a really low bottom. So it was like, it took a lot of, a lot of investigation as it were to, uh, for me to finally like, be like, okay, this isn't going to work. Um, and and part of that ended up me face down in my underwear on the floor of my apartment, like, you know, going through DTs in which a very good friend of mine, fucking, uh, John John Jesse from the bass player from Nausea, who's now like, you know, a very well-known artist. I mean, if you don't know him, you should check out his art. He's fucking amazing. He's an amazing person. But he kind of like Eskimo and from the snow and like was there for me when, uh, you know, I was like, okay, either I get sober or I die, one of the two. And, uh, you know, we had been friends for a long time. We had been friends with three of our kids. And he was like one of the first people to reach out to me and like help me fucking, you know, start getting my shit together and help me start getting some of the tools that I needed to be able to like, you know, go because drugs and alcohol had stopped working, you know, it's like, it's kind of weird because drugs, like after a while, like, you know, no matter how much you drink or how much drugs you use, you go out at night and you see someone and they're like, you know, they're, they're using the same drugs you're on, but they're having so much better of a time. And it's kind of like seeing like an old lover who's out the new date and they're having a great time. And you're just kind of like, Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> totally um, you're like yeah. why is it why is this working for me i totally remember that, that spot what's wrong with me you know and yeah so you just try to do more you switch your lovers and find something else and uh yeah um you know and like i say the bottom is only dictated at when your rate of descent exceeds your ability to lower your standards sure you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, and I had, I had a fairly, I mean, for me, what was a low bottom, um, but that's where I needed to go. Right. You know, um, in order to feel like, you, you, in, order, in order to feel like you need, you obviously had to make that pivot. Otherwise there was, there was no, no coming back. Absolutely. Well, here's the thing about it. When you talk about, um, you know, um, you know, uh, 
theology, so to speak. And, uh, you know, what, what am I religious or I'm, like, I think someone, I've, it's a quote. And like, it's, again, I didn't say this, but drug and alcohol abuse are a low end spiritual search, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. Um, and that's one of the things that the more and more I, the, the, the farther and far I've gotten away from that point, I started to realize that what I was trying to do is trying to find something, you know, where, where does, where does my energy do its best work in the universe? You know? Yeah. No, that makes total sense. That's the only thing that I really kind of know that exists in, you know, unless, you know, someone else is right. And this is all a, a big dream that universe exists. It's been scientifically proven to exist. You know, I know that the Earth rotates on its axis around the sun. It's part of the galaxy, which is part of the universe. And I know that when Gavin Richard Van Vlack passes away, that there's a really good chance that all of the happenings in that universe will still go on. So therefore, there's something much more powerful than me. So to me, the universe is my higher power. You know, and I have to go with what the universe says. Right. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, So. So, something else that I, I found interesting that I, I would like you to expand on in regards to, um, you know, kind of what you were mentioning where obviously, you know, burn started to form out of the the notion that you guys, you know, were deliberately trying to kind of push back on a lot of the, the, the cliches and, you know, other <coughs> things, music, both musically and lyrically. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the but then, you know, I, I, since burn obviously existed for such a short period of time, um, and you, you know, were self-admitted where you were just like, yeah, like the hardcore scene wasn't exactly interesting to you. Um, so how are you kind of, you know, I, I guess, like you said, I mean, maybe just removing yourself from the situation, but how are you distancing yourself personally from obviously a lot of the, the hardcore stuff that you were just simply not interested in? At that point, it was like going to play. I would, I would go to the shows to play shows and then I would pretty much just leave. Like I would maybe if a friend's band was staying I would hang out a little bit and watch, but, um, yeah, it was just like, it just seemed like it was all too much mental overload for me. And I couldn't, I couldn't deal with like all of these, um, like static from it. There was just so much, like, it was too much for me to deal with at that point. And, uh, I felt much happier. Um, just like I said, I would find places to, you know, be alone. I would go to like my, the building I lived in, which I still live in actually. I still live in that very same building and I love it. It's, you know, it's now not so much of a, of an escape as it is a home and it feels really nice. Um, but at that point I would, I had no problems with like going into the subway tunnels and just disappearing into, you know, which was part of like, you know, I was a graffiti writer. And so it was kind of like, you know, it was no big thing, but I just knew there'd be less people there, right. you know? And I think at that point I thought that people were the problem, but it was actually, you know, it was like what we, like I said, what was going on in Van Vlakistan was the issue. Sure. You know? Um, and then the, uh, cause you know, you, uh, fast forwarding a little bit where, cause you, you played in big collapse, which, uh, actually pers- yeah. I, I saw you guys once, uh, you played, uh, a terrible, terrible bar here in Orange County because that's where I live called Hoagie Bar Michaels. It was uh oh my god, I remember that show. Yes, yes, dude. It's just so, and I was really, really good friends with a lot of guys at the militia group. So anyway, I was really excited because it was just like, oh, like shift other cool like yourself, like other cool people are contributing to this project. And I, at that time, I don't even think you had 
uh, a record out. But um, you, you expressed that, like, you know, uh, moving to L.A. was basically your kind of uh, escape to, I guess, get yourself right or put you on a, on a better path. Um, you know, how, how was that kind of a, yeah. a, a turning point for you? And how it, did you? It was interesting because at that point I'd become so fucked up and I wanted to play music. I want, here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play music and I wanted to fight competitively. Those are the two things that I wanted to get back. And at that point, I couldn't find a coach in New York because I'd be, become so fucking like unmanageable and uncoachable that I couldn't find a coach. Um, and no one in their right mind, even my closest friends would get in a band with me because I had just become so fucking unpredictable. And it was just such, I was too much of a liability. So Josh and Matt from Big Collapse had moved out to Los Angeles and uh, Josh hit me up via email. He's like, hey, what are you doing right now? And I was like, well, nothing. Um, He's like, would you be interested in coming out to Los Angeles to play bass for a band? And I was like, sure. I I have nothing holding me in New York. Nothing at all. You know, I had burned down everything from like, you know, musical connections to like, you know, competitive, you know, competitive fighting coaches to like, even like I, I like burned a relationship to the ground with a girl, you know, a marriage just totally left in ashes. Um, and I had literally nothing. And the universe, basically, I saw that as the universe being like, hey, I think it may be time for your fucking narrow ass to get your shit together and go to Los Angeles. So I went out to L.A., which was a big wake up call because I was, you know, I didn't have a car. Um, I got around on a bike for like my first six months out there, that's which was br- that's brutal. It, but it, you know what? It was fucking amazing because I became such a hustler. I became so much, much like, okay, I got to get this done. I want to do this. I want to. I developed a really good coaching business of my own. I started training again, um, and like fighting, which was fun. Um, there was never a lot of money. In it. I, it was just it was an outlet. And it was something that I really loved. Um, and I was playing music and my life was so like compartmentalized out, like wake up in the morning, go train clients, go to the first gym and do all my, do like my Muay Thai training, you know, get lunch, bike out to Van Nuys, do my boxing training, bike back in New York, train a few more clients. And then in the evening I would either run or go to rehearsal. So it was like, my life was so like regimented. And it was great because I needed that. And also at that point, I'm going to pull the card on myself, was go to as many AA meetings as possible. Um, right. So it was like, you know, it was really amazing. And it was a really cool transformation um, that I needed. And that was, you know, what the universe put in front of me. And it was, it was kind of like, uh, it was kind of like a, uh, um, like Dungeons, it was from Dungeons and Dragons to where like, you know, Okay, well, you know, I, I, you know, at first I didn't have uh, anything, but I got a bike. Okay, I got a bike, and I can get around Los Angeles faster. Within six months, I got a car. I was like, wow, okay, shit's starting to build. You know, I got a car. I got my own apartment. I got this. I got that. And by the time we had finally gotten the record done and were ready to go on tour, I had like a real life. Right. And I was like, I had tools, and I was like, I could deal with it. Like you know, so it was like it wasn't like. I mean, if I had gone right back out on the road, like straight out of like getting sober, I there's a good chance I wouldn't be alive right now. Interesting. I mean, it sounds like too, like obviously that you were thriving off of, like you said, the sort of compartmentalization and structure of your life because that way you yeah. had all of these sort of motivating factors as opposed to like, you know, waking up yeah. and being like, what am I going to do today? Well, one of the biggest things that I took 
um, from suggestion from like a friend of mine was like, you know, cause I got out to Los Angeles and in Los Angeles, there's so many gorgeous, gorgeous women. Just, I mean, there are New York and you know, my first couple of days, like, Oh my God, but, you know, how am I ever going to get a girlfriend in this town? I'm such a piece of crap. And a friend of mine looked at me and he was like, yeah, you know what? I think that's the last thing you need to worry about right now. I kind of stayed out of relationships for a year, which was great because I wasn't fit for human consumption, you know? And, and, uh, it took me a while to like, actually like get, like, I actually got a girlfriend at like a year, a year of being sober. And within two months she broke up with me and it was, it was great because I was actually hurt over it. I never thought I'd be hurt again because I was just like, you know, I'd been eviscerated, um, of my own doing, not anybody else's fault. But I was like, wow, this hurts. And I'm actually like, wow, I'm glad I can acknowledge that. Like I'm actually, I actually care about this person. Right. No. You know, that was a big thing. Right. Right. Yeah. You felt like you were, um, I guess re- repaired enough to be like, oh, I can actually, um, you know, interact with a human being and not, uh, have this total, totally dissolve in front of my face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then like you've mentioned, uh, many times through our, our, our chat here, the, obviously the, the training and personal fitness and, um, you know, all of that has been such a, it seems like it's been such a, a huge component of your life. Um, when did mm-hmm. that kind of sort of interject itself? Cause obviously you've been into it. So for quite some time that obviously it seems like, uh, <laughs> it's been longer than, uh, the MMA has obviously been popular here, <laughs> here in the States. So like, when did that kind I of, I mean, yeah, I started doing Muay Thai way before like MMA had become popular. And it's like, even then, like, you know, we started like Muay Thai really around maybe 1990, it started in New York, but like California, California's had, had Muay Thai for a lot longer. I got introduced to it uh, from a friend of mine, AJ James, who had trained in, in, he had trained in France and he came back and was like, oh, I learned, because we were all into martial arts, you know, what guy isn't into martial arts? At that point, AJ was one of the few people that I could really deal with and could deal with me. So I started, you know, my new place, houses of, of seclusion started becoming boxing gyms, you know, where I could go and and I could isolate myself on a fucking heavy bag for an hour at a time and just train and train and train and train. And uh, I got really good at it, you know, for a long time. I mean, I've gone back and forth where, oh, wow, I'm really sharp and I'm like in fight shape. And this, you know, to where times where I'm like, oh, my God, how, how can I even walk? You know, so it's like. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the component of it. Uh, to me, and it's become more and more apparent as I've gotten older um, that, you know, like, like as smart as we want to get, that means nothing if we don't maintain, if we don't maintain the physical form as well along with it. So if you, you know, follow all these intellectual endeavors are great, but if you're not nourishing your body and, you know, with, with both food and movement, it's going to debilitate your brain. These are all, they're all studies that have been proven now. They're finding studies in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's that have, you know, led to this. And it's, you know, one of the things that like, I think, uh, you know, at this age, like why I keep moving, of course, I'm 47 years old and I want to be able, I want to be a robust 90 year old. I want to fucking, you know, be able to, I mean, I want to be able to do jujitsu when I'm older. I want to be able to, you know, do bag work. Maybe I won't spar but i want to be able to do bag work and pad work when i'm in my 60s and 70s i don't know i'm not there yet but i want to you know i have plans up until i'm 120 years old 
Right, right. So well, I, I also like this. I like this too that you you've pulled in. Um, I just love the verbiage of like a movement enthusiast because I do think it's yeah. like yeah most most people live very sedentary lives. Like you know at the very the very best they're active for like three hours a week maybe yeah it, yeah and I, I like I like how you're obviously like you said you're um, or like you've said in the past where it's like it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're moving as long as you're doing yeah. something. Well, here's the thing: is that exercise is fucking unnatural. It is. Exercise is unnatural. My dog does not exercise. My dog plays. Why? Because my dog knows how to move. The reason that we have to exercise is because we've forgotten how to move. Now, once we retain movement, once we get that movement back, then it's our job to incorporate it into some kind of play. Now, hopefully that play will include community, which overall helps our world in general because we need to have more community. We need to have more people getting together over common things like movement, like let's say volleyball or rock climbing or tennis or, you know, with us, it's martial arts, it's jujitsu and Muay Thai. These are, these are our versions of play. It's not about like the, the facility I own with uh, PCC physical culture collective, which is our, our Muay Thai team is called diamond heart. It's not for us. It's not about like making killer fighters. For us, we want to make excellent training partners. We want it so that when someone comes in new, they're 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 paired up with someone who can help them get better. Right, right. You know, because that's our job is to help everyone get better on every endeavor in life. You know, how do I help you get better, and then in turn make something for me? Sure, you totally. Know? No, it it's... makes a better training partner for me. Yeah, well, and it, it it coincides with your your philosophical beliefs in regards to art as well, where it's like you're. You're you're contributing something, and you're hopefully going to be that yes. that assistance point for somebody. Hopefully, yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, but that's the thing is like it, it doesn't have to be martial arts. It can be rock climbing. It can be I mean whatever it is you want to do. Go dance. Just do something because especially I mean for the hardcore scene, I'll say this. I mean John John Joseph chimed in on this with me, and so is John Purcelli. They want you sick, and you can hashtag that fucking thing. Hashtag they want you sick. Because if you're sick, that means they've got you on their, on their pills. They've got you in their medical industrial complex, okay? That's just another way of them keeping you in check. The most rebellious thing you can do right now is to take care of yourself. Right. And educate your children to take care of themselves. You know, shut the TV off. Put down the computer. After you're done with this, put the computer away. Put the iPhone away. Go out and just roll around for fucking fifteen minutes. Totally. Go down, go down to the go down to the ground and get back up for ten minutes straight and see how friggin' winded you get. <laughs> no, totally. I'll tell you, hey, that's an evaluation that I used in my gym. I'll I'll bring someone else, but they'll tell me to get down to the ground and then get back up. And there's a certain way that we grade it that will predict your chances of all cause mortality. And this isn't a scare tactic. This is just something that we use as an evaluation because if we can improve that, it's based off of a Brazilian study, but if we can improve that, we can improve our clients' chances of not dying at an early age. Yeah, which is incredible. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to hit on before I let you go was the, um, yeah. obviously since you, you've done reunion shows in New York city and come out to California and you know, you did, you did one in the UK, am I correct? Or, um, yes, we did. Okay. That's why I thought. At the park. Yeah. Right. Um, cause obviously, I, I mean, 
it, it's very common for bands to do that now. But it's like if there are obviously people who are critical of reunions and want bands to stay in their sort of you know time frame, and it loses the magic or whatever d- description you want to put on it. Um, okay, what, well, I, I what, apologize what kind of, to those people. Yeah, no, no. What, what kind of makes it important uh, to you to obviously, yeah, um, not even so much from the band's perspective, but for you to be like, no, like, I think this is appropriate to kind of put this out there and this is what I'm getting out of it and whatever. Well, we originally did it. I just thought it would be fun to do it, to play with Chaka again. And uh, I thought it would just, I was like, wow, this, you know, I haven't played with Chaka in forever and this would be fun. And when we decided to do it and we went, you know, it went public I started getting a lot of emails from people that was like really important to. And I kind of would take that as being, I think we had a majority of people that it was really important to, as opposed to the, maybe the minority of people who thought that we should just, you know, not do it. So the eyes have it. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sure. You know, sure, that and also, yeah, that and also I, I, you know, I do movement like I do music. I love all sorts of movement and uh, I love all sorts of music. I mean, burn isn't the only thing that i'm working on i'm a musician even if i wasn't working on music to record and play live i would still play music because that's what i do so no one has the right to tell me whether or not i can put a band back together or you know bring energy back to the surface that i had something to do with that's my right you know no one no one can tell me any different yeah you know and if that if that bumps somebody out then you know what there's much more important things you'd be upset over. Right. Yeah. Don't, right. And, or maybe just don't come to the show. Like that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and speaking on that, cause obviously like you, you mentioned that, you know, you uh, are, are writing new material for burn. I know you're finishing up stuff for, uh, for absolution as well. Um, is it yeah. one of those things where basically you're just kind of in that sort of, uh, zone where it's like, okay, well, I, I feel you know very comfortable with what I'm doing with my personal life, so I want to be able to you know contribute musically in all of these other ways, uh, just because it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, the absolution thing is a different thing too, because it's like Gingy is a different energy than Chaka is, um, and it's uh, you know, and then the guys that I play with that Dan Dan Cav and uh, Andy Guida are like, I love doing music with those guys. Um, I'm also doing a couple other projects. I'm doing this project with this woman, Freya Wilcox from Australia, who is, uh, I mean, she's kind of like PJ Harvey meets Kurt Cobain in a way. I mean, she's just a really ballsy woman with a a great message and a great voice. And, uh, you know, it's just, I just, I want to do music with people that I like to do music with. Um, and it's, you know, in being that I can actually, I, I don't, I like being around people and I love meeting new people now. It's kind of interesting because this is just an avenue for that, you know, and if someone, you know, someone gets introduced to me through music and then they find out what I also do and that brings them to somewhere else in their life, I, I think that's, that's a win-win situation. You know, absolutely. Yeah. It just, it all yeah. kind of contributes to this, this, this pot uh, of of yeah. stew of what people are doing because a lot of people I think it's very indicative of people who kind of get raised within the sort of you know punk hardcore DIY community where it's like you don't just do one thing you know you're always involved with multiple mm-hmm. things and they all kind of contribute to we were fed a huge lie in the, the concept of a career of like oh well just get your career you do that until you're 65 and then you can retire don't fucking retire retiring's a death trap Always have something to do. Always have something that keeps you mentally and physically stimulated. Something that you're excited about. The second you stop being excited about something, it's dead. 
Instead, we constantly need new stimulus. We need to have passion. As yeah. humans, we need to have that passion. And you see it all the time. These guys, oh, they work until they're 65, and then, oh, well, I'm just going to sit back and retire. The brain, the brain and the body know when they're not needed anymore, and they'll just call it. Right. You know? Totally. They'll call it. They're like, you're not using me. I'm done here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So always have something you're doing. Always have. I mean, this is just my current incarnation of what I, what I am. I mean, it was weird. After I quit fighting, I was kind of like, it was odd because I quit fighting and I wasn't really doing music. And I was like, wow, what the fuck am I right now? And I had a long talk with, uh, one, one, uh, I mean, it's no, it's no big strange. Everybody knows I'm really good friends with uh, Tate Fletcher. I work with him for Caveman Coffee. And, uh, and Tate said, you know what, man? it's that that adjustment that we go through of being like wow what am i now and you can be anything you want to be you know the whole idea of like oh well i'm 47 years old and this is all i know what do i do next whatever you want to you just have to learn to do it you know that's all it is and we are constantly if we if we always stay of a student mind we will always be able to learn right no it's it's does that make sense no i love yeah, it don't I, think yeah don't ever for a second don't ever for a second think you know everything there is to know. And I'll tell you what, man, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, kick the walls out and expand the room and get more people in there. Yeah. You know, don't ever, ever. Yeah. That's you want to be, you want to be around people that just fucking make you that light you on fire, that make you want to live, that make you want to love, that make you want to do awesome things. And that's what I'm talking about with inspiration. Those are the people that I keep around me. If you don't have people around you like that, hit me up. I got plenty of friends you got to meet. Right, right. You know? Well, I, I can't think of a better place to, uh, to leave it than there. But thank you so much, dude. This has been awesome. I, I really Never uh, a problem. Never really, a problem. I really enjoyed the conversation. So there you go. There was Gavin. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to actually meet him in real life, person to person. Because... Um, I just love when people kind of take the sort of inspirational speaker stance, you know, whether or not they themselves are intentionally doing that or if it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, hey, I want to share my story. And like, yeah, it may seem unconventional and I've gone through some crappy stuff, but I came out the other end. I just love that because it really puts into perspective that everyone's story can be so drastically different, but you can apply the same principles of just like putting your head down you know, focusing on what matters, blah, 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 all the cliches that exist out there, um, and you can get through it. And hopefully, at the end of it, you will still have that passion for whatever thing pulled you through. Um, I just love that. So, anyways, thank you very much to Gavin, and thank you to Adam from H2O for hooking us up. And, um, yeah, Tom Richfield did not produce this episode, so uh, I can't continue to say his name. That's that's my crutch, what I usually do, obviously, at the end of the show. So, um, I edited and produced the show this week. Uh, we will have some other find people stepping into the role soon enough in January and uh, yeah happy new year you know hopefully you you party safe and uh, everybody in your surrounding circles does exactly the same um, yeah I'm, I'm looking like a crazy person by driving on the 15 freeway and talking into a microphone so um, yeah I will stop now but happy new year and thank you so much for listening to the show because honestly it, this has been an experiment to turn into to some pseudo sort of living and also interacting with so many people who uh, I never would have interacted with before. So I love it. I appreciate it. And I appreciate all of you. So until next year, be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.